Thanks, Evan. It's been fun to watch over the, since I've known him, probably two years now. He actually ran a, before he was over there full-time, he did a, worked for, what was it, Evan, like a company that took around movie theater screens and, yeah, LED stuff. So at Foundation Church, before we merged in, he actually came over. That's how I met him, because he would set up outdoor movies for us um, when we did outreach events at, at Foundation Church. So it's just been fun to watch him, his connection with Acacia, and then as we came together with Acacia and formed Creekside, and it's just been cool to see what God's doing. Um, so thanks for that, Evan. All right, let's dive in. John 13. We've been working our way through the book of John. So if you want to go ahead and turn to John 13, we can go ahead and get started. Um, I'm reading a book right now that Bob Zintmar recommended. It's called The Robe. Has anybody ever read The Robe? You don't count Bob and neither does your family. Um, anybody ever read it? It's, um, it's definitely fiction, but I'd probably throw it into the historical fiction category, but it follows the lives of two men. One is a Roman commander, a commander in the Roman military, and the other is the commander's slave. And he was taken prisoner from the city of Corinth. Um, And as the story begins, the commander gets this letter from Pontius Pilate asking him and his men to come to Jerusalem to help keep the peace during some random Jewish feast called Passover. Obviously, this is being told from a Gentile perspective. So they set out to Jerusalem. They arrive on Palm Sunday just in time to see Jesus on the back of a donkey riding into the city, and the Jews are waving these palm branches and yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the fascinating thing is you're watching all of this unfold through the eyes of this slave, through this Gentile slave, and he's just taking it all in. And then over the course of the week, there's these different festivities with Passover. And so this Roman commander is asked to kind of facilitate some of these different events throughout the week. And then he's actually in the battalion that's asked to oversee the crucifixion of Jesus. And then he and his men are the ones that are gambling for Jesus's clothes as he hangs on the cross. And they end up getting his robe, hence the title of the book, The Robe. And I'm only about a quarter of the way in, so I have no idea what's going to happen after that. Um, if it's a bad book, Bob, would you raise your hand? It's Bob right there. You can, uh, you can talk to Bob. But one of the things I found most interesting as I'm going through it is they're giving kind of this background. It's, it's very minor, so I did some research on my own, but just this background of what Jerusalem was like during Passover. So, you know, in my mind, and maybe in your mind, I have these snippets of what the city would have been like. And or most of it is, okay, Jesus is here. Okay, Jesus is in the upper room. Okay, he's turning over tables in the temple. Like, it's just pieces together. And so just to kind of do some, some deep research and figure out, well, what did this week look like? You know, what, what was it like? And so, I mean, if you think about it, when Jesus rode into the city, this happened a couple chapters ago, but when Jesus rode into the city, Palm Sunday, on the back of a donkey, and he came through those gates the scene would have been pretty amazing, like crazy. Ancient Jerusalem, dusty roads, mazes, alleys, houses everywhere. You know, the city itself, and I have some pictures of, you know, maps, what we assume. You're probably looking at the back of your Bible and find the same picture. But um, the city itself was divided into a lower city and an upper city. So most of the working people lived in the lower city. 
They had one, two-story houses really close together. Um, as you walk through the lower city, they, each city upper and lower had a market, had their own market. So as you're walking through the lower city, you'd come to Market Street. And you'd pass by these, the city's tradesmen. They'd have all these open-air trade areas where you'd see weavers and dyers and potters and bakers and carpenters, and they'd be hard at work doing what they do. And then a little further down the street, you'd come to the marketplace for the lower city. You'd come to this marketplace, and there'd be, I mean, you name it, it would be there. There'd be clothes, perfumes, jewelry. You could buy animals for the upcoming, for sacrifices, like animals waiting to be sacrificed. There would have been taverns, there would have been restaurants. I mean, it is a full-fledged city. And during Passover, it's just hustling and bustling. You could have got salted fish, fried locusts. You could have bought fruits, vegetables. I mean, you name it, soups, pastries. You'd hear pottery, you know, clanking together as you're walking through the streets. You would have smelled spices from all the food that's going on, all the stuff that's being cooked. Um, And then as you kept walking, you'd go to the upper city, which is kind of on the the upper side of the screen. That's why it's called the upper city. Um, But you come to the upper city, and things were a little more elegant in the upper city. This is where most of the powerful Jewish families lived. This is where the high-ranking Roman officials lived. You can see one of the palaces there in the back. All right, their houses were more spacious. They were marble. They had courtyards and pools and gardens in some cases. And they had their own shops. They had their own market where they would sell the expensive olive oil, spices, perfumes. And this would have been the market where the slaves went. Because the slaves were part of this upper class of folks, slaves, the servants, and they would have come to buy this imported expensive food that they would use for their feasts, for their banquets. They would use it for, you know, some of it would have been used for Passover. And no matter where you were in the city, you could kind of look off to the east and you'd see the temple, which I think we have a, just kind of a blown up picture of that. And it would have been this towering site off to the east. You probably could have seen it from anywhere in the city. You know, obviously, if you just kind of you know, moved over a little bit, you could, have, you could have, this temple was just this towering presence. And during Passover, the city's population would have grown by probably hundreds of thousands. So you have a certain population in the city, and it would have ballooned during Passover, hundreds of thousands. All right, the vast majority would have stayed in tents on the hillside around the city. Some would stay in private homes, some would stay in the surrounding villages like Bethany. And the, it really would have been a melting pot Kind of like maybe you think of maybe New York City or Miami. You just go in and there's different ethnicities, there's different social statuses. Wealthy Jews rolling into town with their caravans of goods and their servants coming behind them. And then you've got Jesus and his disciples walking through the streets of Jerusalem, kind of just taking this all in. Okay, it's John 13, it's Passover week. This is when the week when the Jews celebrated their deliverance from Egypt from slavery, from bondage, way back in the Exodus, second book of the Bible. This also would be the week when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So part of the city is celebrating Passover, and Jesus is preparing for the cross. All right, he came into the city Sunday, as we just mentioned, Palm Sunday, as we now call it, riding on the back of a donkey. On Monday, you can read this in Matthew 21 to 24, but on Monday, he goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple, turns over the money changers, kind of pushes people out. And the money changers were there because Jerusalem was allowed to use their own currency. So the Romans, when they came in, they said, okay, you can still use your own currency. We'll, you know, we'll throw you some bones here. But when the Jews from outside came in and made the journey into Jerusalem, they couldn't use their Roman coins. 
So there had to be money changers. So they would come in and they would exchange their money from their Roman coin to their Jewish coin. But Jesus said, look, that's, this is, the temple's not the place for that. You can do that, but this is not a, a den of thieves. This is not a den of robbers. This is a place of prayer. So that's, that's what happened on Tuesday. All right. Um, actually, that's what happened on Monday. Tuesday was a day of conflict. You can read about it again in Matthew. It's a day of conflict as the, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees try to convict Jesus, kind of try to find more reasons to hang him on a cross. All right, Wednesday was probably a day of rest. And as we open up in John 13, it's now Thursday. All right, Jesus and his disciples have made their way to the upper room. They've been in and out of the city all week, but they're making their way to the upper room where they're about to share the annual Passover feast. So if you turn to John 13, verse 1, let's get going. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it's it's a really interesting way to kind of open this passage, but really verse 1, you should think of verse 1 as kind of an introductory statement to the next few chapters. So John 13, 14, 15, 16, and even 17 is the high priestly prayer as Jesus is walking to the garden of Gethsemane. But that whole, that those, those whole chapters are called the farewell discourse. If you open to John 14, you'll probably see that in your Bible as the heading, the farewell discourse. So this verse 1 kind of introduces that. Jesus knew his hour was coming. All through, actually his hour had come. All through the book of John, you see, this is not yet the hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And then we see the hour has come. This, this is the time. This is the final week. And really what he wanted to do, it says he loved them to the end. He wanted to encourage his disciples one last time. And that's what you're going to see throughout this whole farewell discourse is encouragement to his disciples to show them love even in the last few hours before the cross. I mean, if you're in, not that we can put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, but if you know that your life is over, you know you're going to hang on a cross in pain, you know, it would be hard for me to show others love in that moment. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking through the realities of it. You'd like to think, oh, I'm going to be strong to the very end, but, but let's be serious. If you know that the next day you're going to hang on a cross, that's tough. And I know that's what he came to do, and I know his ways, like, it, obviously he's on a different level. But it's, it's important to understand, it says he loved them. This is John writing this. He loved them to the end. All right, verse 2. It says, during supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Okay, now you can almost picture, at least I can, John, an old man writing this letter. Right, he, most people think, most scholars think he wrote this letter many years later. So an old man writing this letter, probably closing his eyes, kind of reflecting on that final supper, that last supper with Jesus and his disciples. And John says, while we were eating, like it's, it's probably mind-blowing to John. Look, this happened, what's about to happen, happened in the middle of supper. It was during supper. And the other thing is, the devil had already entered into Judas, so what he says, the devil had already entered into Judas, Judas, or to Judas, and Jesus knew 
that Judas was going to betray him. Like he knew Judas was going to betray him. The father had given all things into his hands. He'd come from God. He was going back to God. Like, like all of these statements are elevating Jesus to his rightful place. All of these statements that John is making is elevating Jesus to where he needs to be. And, and John's basically saying, in spite of the fact that he was God, in spite of all his majesty, all his glory, he was from God. He was going back to God. He gets up from the table. He lays aside his outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist. In verse 5, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet, wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let that sink in for a second. Wipe them with the towel. Wipe the disciples' feet with the towel that was wrapped around him. And in those days, you basically walked everywhere you went. Okay, it, was, it would have been, animals could have been used by the rich, but a lot of times they were hard to navigate. You know, when you got to where you were going, it was hard to put them there. So the vast majority of people got around by foot. It's the Middle East. It's dusty. It's dirty. It's deserty. Even if it rained, there would be mud everywhere because all this dust and all this dirt is turning into mud. And so by the time you got to your destination, your feet were dirty. Not to mention the fact that you're wearing sandals, which doesn't help. Okay, so you, you really had to wash your feet. So every single house, and this is really important, every single house you went to would have a bowl out front where people could wash their feet. It would have been like a welcome mat. How many of you have a welcome mat in front of your house? All right, if, if you don't raise your hand, most of you are going to raise your hand. Most of you have some kind of mat either right inside the front door or right, at the, right, right outside the door where you're going to clean your feet. Right? I mean, that's, that's very common. It would have been like that. You'd walk into a house, you'd find the bowl, you'd grab a cloth, and you'd, you'd clean your feet. Occasionally, you'd wash your own feet. There was nobody around to help you out. Sometimes you'd wash maybe a friend's feet. If it was easier just to, you know, you wash my feet, I'll wash your feet, that kind of thing. Sometimes that's easier. If you were at a social gathering, or if you were rich and could afford it, you had servants and slaves who did it for you. That's... That's the important thing to remember. Most of the time, the servants and the slaves did it. If you were at a gathering, you were at a social gathering, that kind of thing. And, you know, you might think, well, that's kind of weird. Like, what's the big deal about clean feet? I don't, when I think of the ancient world, I don't exactly, like, I don't exactly, cleanliness is not really the first thing that comes to mind when I think of the ancient world, at least for me. So what's, what's the big deal about feet? But you have to realize, when you walked into a house, their furnishings were not like our furnishings. They didn't have all these chairs and all these things you would sit on. You literally would sit on mats. You'd sit on pillows. You'd sit on the floor most of the time to have your discussions. And if you were sharing a meal, you'd walk in, you'd sit on a mat, you'd sit on the ground, and you would recline at the ground, on the ground. Or you kind of lean back with your left arm, you'd eat with your right arm, and your feet would be, literally be all up like this. So I have no idea if this is what the upper room looked like. But visually, I want you to see the height of the table. Most tables were shorter. Most tables weren't like our tables, which are higher, where you're expected to sit in a chair. Most tables were shorter because you'd be sitting on the ground. So you'd be sitting on the ground, you'd be eating your meal, um, and the meals were a production. In America, we like to eat fast. We like to be done. We like to get on with our day. In other cultures, even today, meals are a longer production. Sometimes they take an hour. Sometimes they take two hours. If you go to Europe and they, you, know, you just get like a main course and you don't get the appetizer, you don't get the first course and you don't get the pasta and you don't get the... Mi- they're like, what are you doing? You're just, like, this makes no sense to them because they eat in courses and it takes a while for the dinner to happen. And so you know, it would have been common for the, for the meals to last hours. 
All right, and so when you pull up next to somebody, you're reclining at the table, your feet are all up in their business, you don't want to be looking at somebody's dirty feet for two hours. Am I right? I mean, I don't want to look at them for five minutes, but you don't want to look at them for, for two hours. So cleanliness is a good thing. So everyone, every house had something to wash the feet. It's like saying thanks before a meal. All right, how many of you have ever gone to eat a meal, even at home or something, and you take your first bite and you look around and say, did we pray? You know, did, did we pray? I can't remember if we prayed or not. And so everybody stops, puts down their food, and they pray. That's exactly what it had been like. Wait, do we, do we wash our feet? I don't know if we washed our feet or not. So, so let me ask you a question. Here's a question. Here's what I'm trying to draw your attention to. If every single house had a bowl and every single person washed their feet before they ate and reclined at a table for two hours, why did the disciples not wash their feet on one of the most important meals of the year? Clearly it entered into their mind. Every time you ate, you did it. And this is Passover. Clearly, they thought about it. Okay? And you're going to see in a second, there was already water and a cloth in the room. So they had obviously prepared for it ahead of time. But nobody did anything. You know, if you, if you read, through the, read through John, just a few days before, Mary had come in and she had washed the feet of Jesus. You remember that? She got that expensive oil, expensive perfume, and she washed his feet with her tears, and she, she you know, wiped it with her hair. That would have been etched in every single disciple's mind. You're not getting rid, of a, you're not getting rid of, a, of a picture like that, especially given the fact that Judas was mad about it and Judas left and said, we could have spent that money on the poor. I mean, that picture is etched into their mind. So why did they go to the upper room and do nothing? And, you know, you could probably cut them some slack and say, it's Passover, Jesus, you know, everybody's looking for Jesus, trying to kill him. You know, maybe they're just anxious. Maybe they didn't think about it. Maybe they were kind of waiting for something else to happen. All right, but if you go to Luke 22... It's always beautiful getting the Gospels and getting different viewpoints of the same meal and different explanations from different people. So Luke says in Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Think about that. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So they get to the upper room, this last supper, Jesus is there, the food is all laid out, you know, and then they decide to get into a disagreement with each other about who is the greatest. A dispute arose. It doesn't say somebody innocently asked a question which was quickly disregarded by the rest of the group. It says a dispute arose, a heated discussion back and forth about who's going to be the greatest. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All right, we have no idea when kind of this... The seeds of this discussion started, but I wouldn't be surprised, it's pure speculation, it's not in scripture, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were all week long, something was brewing. All week long, something was brewing. They're out walking around the city, they walked through the upper city, they didn't spend much time in the city. They would come in, Jesus would go to the temple, he would teach, he would do miracles, they would leave, they'd probably go back out to Bethany, they'd sleep on the hillside, they'd go back into the city the next day, and they spent a lot of time up in Caesarea Philippi, like up in the north, and so they didn't spend a ton of time in and out of Jerusalem. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're walking around the upper city, they see all these elegant markets, these expensive olive oils, and they start thinking, I wonder what it'd be like to be wealthy. Like, I wonder what it would be like. They see these Jewish caravans coming into town, servants in tow, food, goods. And by the time they get to the upper room, there's no way they're washing each other's feet. They deserve respect, right? They deserve somebody to wash their feet. They don't wash, no one wash nobody's feet. 
And so Jesus in, in Luke 22, if you stay in Luke for a second, Luke 22, he, he basically says, he's, he's taking this picture and he says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. That's what Jesus says to their discussion about who's the greatest. So he, he rose from supper and he washed their feet. Gets up, walks over, and washes their feet. Can you imagine as he walked over to the first disciple, they see him pick up the bowl, they see him walk over, they see him kneel down like this. I mean, what, what is going through their minds when he gets down on one knee? The creator of the universe gets down on one knee to wash their feet. Nobody says a word, I promise you. Everybody freezes, like nothing's happening. They're shocked, they're convicted. They're probably replaying this conversation about who's the greatest in their head. Probably thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have made that point. I shouldn't have made that point. Like, like you, can, you can picture what's happening. And they know the humiliation involved in washing feet, which is why they didn't do it. They didn't want any part of it. John MacArthur says, for a fisherman to wash another fisherman's feet, it's a small act of humility. But for the creator to wash the feet of proud men who are sinful in their pride is indeed an amazing condescension. I was in India a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever been to India, but it's a pretty crazy place. It's like good crazy, but it's a pretty crazy place, all right? It's like nothing I've ever experienced before. The sights, the sounds, the smells, the food, I mean, the, just the spices. It's sensory overload for like every aspect of your life, I can assure you. And while we were there, we partnered with some local pastors and did some work in the slums, worked with orphans, did some teaching, did some preaching to some of the local pastors who were there. We were in the northern part of India. All right, it's a pretty amazing trip, but on the last day, one of the pastors who we were working with said, why don't you guys, your last day here, why don't you come over to my house for some fellowship and some prayer? Really, you know, a small little apartment. But he said, come over, to my, come over to my place for some fellowship and prayer. And so when we got there, we walked into the main living area, sat down, and I'm kind of half paying attention to what's going on. He goes into the kitchen, and we're talking for a few minutes, and then he walks out with this bowl, this big bowl of water. He sets it on the ground in front of me, and he goes, can I wash your feet? And this was not a cleanliness thing. I was wearing tennis shoes and I was wearing socks. He was not trying to say, you're dirtying up my house. This, this, that's, not the, it, that's not what he was trying to do. And I froze. All right, for like probably, what it felt like five minutes, it was probably five seconds, but I didn't know what to do. I had like a million thoughts running through my mind and not a single one of those thoughts thought it was a good idea for him to wash my feet. All right. Eventually, though, I mean, what are you going to do? So eventually I said yes, and for the next few minutes, he proceeds to wash my feet and then goes from one person to the next person to the next person and then comes back around and he washed everyone's feet. Not one person said anything. It was dead silence. And I have no idea what the others were thinking, but it's a very humbling experience. I mean, it would maybe be a little different if I had paid somebody to do it, right? I mean, in my mind. I'm talking my mind. I might have been a little more justified if I had paid somebody to do it, like one of the chai, you know, the chai wallows, the kids that are running around selling tea. 
Maybe I paid one of them to do it. That might be a little different. But this is an Indian pastor who lived an extremely difficult life proclaiming the gospel. And he's showing me love and humility by washing my feet. Now, I'm not comparing what happened to me in India to the upper room. Right? I realize it's a different situation, but the similarities and the principle is the same. This pastor was showing love and humility. It was, it was just an example. My feet weren't dirty, theoretically. It was literally an example, and he wanted to show me that he loved me. And then I asked myself the question, would I have washed his feet? I'd like to think so. That's, it's humiliating. Is it not? To think about that? I mean, just, you know, well, why would I do that? How do I do that? I mean, all right, how about the feet of the orphans running around through the train stations? No shoes, no socks. Picture the, the dump that Evan is explaining. How about the orphans running around selling chai? Would I watch their feet? You know, it's easy to stand up here and say, oh, pfft, I would. No doubt. But would you? You know, would you do whatever it takes to show the love of Christ to people who cross your path? Because that's really what he was doing. Showing love to the people who cross your path. Displaying humility under any circumstance to show them Jesus. And you could say, well, I'd you know, I'd definitely wash Jesus' feet. His disciples... All day long. This pastor in India, if I got my mind right, absolutely. Probably even the orphan selling chai. But how about Judas? How about people you don't exactly care for? Those who oppose you. John already said that Jesus knew who was going to betray him. And he got on his knees he grabbed the water basin, he sat at the feet of Judas, and he grabbed the cloth, and he took Judas's foot, put it in his hand, and washed his feet. Knowing what was just about to happen. That's love. And that's humility. Loving those who oppose you, loving those who don't like you, loving those who will give you nothing in return. So, let me ask you a question before we go any further. Are you willing to humble yourself for others? And forget foot washing for a second. Are you willing to serve them under any circumstance? Are you willing to serve those who hate you? Who are opposed to you? That's a, that's a very tough thing to do because we're naturally self-centered. We're born self-centered. Every ounce of me wants to serve me. Every ounce of me wants to do something that's good for me. It's all about me. Somebody takes a group photo, you go out to dinner, somebody gets around to take a group photo, and you say, well, let me look at the picture. You ain't nobody else. <laughs> you want to see if you look good. And that's going to be the determining factor of whether that picture needs to be retaken. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, that's a bad picture. Everybody, everybody says, man, it looks great. <laughs> And you're like, horrible picture, take it again, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do. We're, concern, we're consumed with our needs, but humility looks to Jesus. 
Andrew Murray says, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. Humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. You want to be like Jesus? Serve others. Humble yourself. And that doesn't mean to think less of yourself. It means to think of yourself less. And think of God more. That's, that's really what it means. It means to think of God more. So Jesus continues foot washing. He makes his way around the room. Hits all, I could name all the disciples, but hits all the disciples. And then he gets to Peter. And he came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. All right, and if you read this in the original language or you read a commentator who knows how to read it in the original language, it says, because I don't know how to do that, but I, the commentators I read said, this is the strongest possible language that Peter could have used. There is no way under any circumstance that you will ever wash my feet. That's what Peter is saying. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So as we've seen throughout the book of John, Jesus is taking something tangible and making a spiritual application. He's done it all over the book. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the water. I'm the, you know, resurrection life. I mean, he takes these, these actual things that are there. Goes to the lady, the woman at the well, and just talks about water and living water. And I mean, he does this all over the book and he makes a spiritual application. He's just humbled himself to the lowest of low in that culture. Taking the form of a slave, taking the form of a, ser- of a servant, all right? And he says, look, Peter, tomorrow I'm going to take that humiliation to the nth degree. That humiliation is going all the way to the end. As Paul tells the church at Philippi in, in Philipp- Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read it later. But he says, look, tomorrow, the following day, I'm going to take that humiliation all the way. The only way to heaven, here's what he's telling Peter, the only way to heaven is through me. The only way to heaven is if I wash you. You say, don't let me, don't wash me, don't wash me. It's a spiritual application. The only way you're getting to heaven is if I wash you. That, that's what he's saying. I am the way, John 14, 6, we'll read next in two weeks. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Like, I have to wash you. So in, in verse 9, Peter says, all right, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said that all of you are clean. So most people in this culture would bathe every morning. In the case, you know, we can speculate and say in the case of Jesus and his disciples, they probably stayed in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So it's a very good chance they would have bathed that morning. That's just what they did in those days. And so you would go around that Thursday. He would go everywhere he was going. And they would get to the upper room and they wouldn't need to bathe. They had taken a bath that day. They just needed their feet washed. That's, that's ultimately what he's saying. So, you know, he's basically, here's, here's what he's saying. Peter, you're clean. You're saved. Spiritual application. You're saved. You don't need to be saved again. You just need your feet cleaned. All right now, you know, here's, here's the thing. When we confess Jesus as Lord, give our lives to him, our dirtiness is washed away. You're cleansed. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When you give your life to him, you're clean. So in a sense, you're bathed all over, your sins are forgiven, you're washed. But as we go through life, we slip up, right? We go through life, we fall. We step in things we shouldn't step in. We sin. We're human. 
doesn't mean just because we're, we're believers that we don't sin. We still screw up. We still sin. And so Jesus says, look, when that happens, you don't need to be saved again. You just need your feet clean. You just need to confess that sin and give it to the Lord. And here, here's what I want you to know. In a room of this size, it'd be very important for you to understand this. I think a big thing that we forget in the church is the ongoing repentance in the life of a believer. And this is really what Jesus is telling him. We, we really focus a lot on the confession that happens when you give your life to Christ. Lord, I need a savior. I know you died on the cross. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be, you know, I want to follow you the rest of my life. You pay, you pray that prayer at, at the point of salvation. But so often what we forget is that ongoing prayer of repentance that helps just restore that relationship with God. You know, when, you have, when you're praying to him, when you're seeking him, when you're reading your Bible, if there's a lot of sin in your life, that relationship is jacked up. It's just, there's, there's something there. If you're pursuing him over here and you're sinning over here, that, that relationship's not where it needs to be. And so Jesus said, look, Peter, you're, you're saved. You don't need another bath. I just need to clean your feet. So it's a, it's a spiritual picture of what's happening. You know, Lord, I screwed up. Forgive me. Restore me. All right, so in the Old Testament, there's this story of King David. This is probably a thousand years before what we just read. King David, all of a sudden, he sees this lady, Bathsheba, and he says, I want her. All right, and so somebody comes to him and says, well, she's married to one of your soldiers. And he says, basically, I don't care. And so stuff happens and you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, but things happen and at some point down the road, I mean, the, the Bathsheba's husband ends up being killed. I mean, it's a pretty crazy story of what happens, but at some point down the road, David realizes what he's done. I don't know what it takes. I don't know what happens, but you know, Samuel's involved and there's, there's, if he figured out what he's done. And Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance over what he's done. So if you read through the Psalms and you see, you know, different things that have happened, you read these different Psalms, a lot of times those Psalms relate back to stories that are happening elsewhere in scripture. So Psalm 51 verse 7, I'm just going to pick a little snippet up. Verse 7, this is part of David's prayer of repentance. He's trying to restore that relationship with God because he knows he screwed up. And he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me. This is one of my favorite verses, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Such a beautiful reminder of that. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. This is, this is ongoing. You need to walk on a holy path. And if you screw up, everybody screws up. When you screw up, let's have a conversation about it. Repent and keep moving. That's, that's basically the picture that he's doing. So in verse 12, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer, outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So he jumps from this spiritual lesson back to a physical lesson. He looks at his disciples and says, if I'm your Lord, if I'm the Christ, if I'm the Messiah, and I wash your feet, go and do the same. Love humbly. 
selflessly. And here's the important part, down to the smallest, simplest parts of your life. Serve others down to the smallest, simplest part of your life. John Wesley says, humility and patience are the surest proofs of the increase of love in your life. Humility and patience are the surest proofs of the increase of love in your life. And the whole passage, you know, if you step back and think about the passage, the whole passage is built around this conversation they're having at dinner about who's the greatest, arguing about it. And instead of reprimanding them, instead of lecturing them, Jesus shows them what it means to be the greatest. He shows them what it means to humble yourself. He shows them what it means to serve. In verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. He says, if you ever wonder what love looks like, think of me. Think of this moment right here. Taking on the role of the lowest servant and loving people to the end. All right? If you ever wonder what you should do with your time, think of me. If you ever wonder what you should do with the money I've given you, think of me. If you ever wonder what you should do with the gifts I've given you, Think of me and my example that you also should do just as I have done. Serve like I've served. Give like I've given. Love like I've loved. You know, the interesting thing is everybody in here has a, is in a different spot. You have different centers of influence. You have different people you talk to. Between everybody in this room, think about how many people in this area that we touch. How many people we have impact with? How many people we have daily relationships with? God's like, look, I've given you a voice. I've given you a position. I've given you authority in some way or another. Use it to show the world who I am. Use it to serve people. All right, then he finishes this little section with a challenge, 16 and 17, and we wrap up. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, don't, don't miss that last little part. This example of me washing your feet means nothing if you don't do something with it. Blessed are you if you do them. It's, it's, it's great to know things up here. It's great to come into church and hear about humility and hear about love. But unless you walk out that door and do something with it? Did, it? did it really mean anything? And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Now this, this, this got them. All right? they, they, this probably propelled the entire rest of their lives. Most of them were martyred, if not all of them besides John were martyred at some point. And I guarantee you, this scene right here, we're going to see next week, we're going to finish John 13. And if you, if you read, John also wrote a letter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He wrote three more letters, the same John who wrote this gospel. And John, 1 John, if you read it, it's all about love. Love, 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 love. I mean, literally, if you had one theme for the entire book of 1 John, it's love. This moment right here of Jesus washing their feet impacted them for the rest of their lives. There is no doubt. It, it totally jacked them up. All right? Because humility, love, they're tough. We live in a society where everybody wants to be great. I want to be the best at this. I want to be the best at this. I want to be the best athlete. I want to have the best business. I want to be the best singer. I want to be the best actor. We give awards for all these things. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's 
people's pursuit. I want to be, sometimes it even flows over into the Christian world. I want to be the best pastor. I want everybody to like me. I want everybody to listen to my podcast. I want to be the biggest church. I want to be the best church in town. So everybody can look at my church and see how good we are. That's not the goal. That's never the goal. The goal is to pursue Christ and love Christ and everything else is an overflow from that. If you have the biggest church in town, great. Joel Osteen's got a pretty big church too. All right, and so it's, there's, there's, this, there's this thing of humility. So let me, as we wrap up, let me say this. Where do we go from here? What do, what, do we, what do we take with us today? So a couple things. For those of you who aren't Christians, I know there's some of you in here. You're curious, but you've never given your life to Jesus. Let today be the day. This John writes, 1 John, he says, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You almost have to picture like Jesus is standing here today with a bowl and he's ready to wash your sins away. That's literally the picture. He's standing here with a bowl. He's on his knees saying, I'm willing to wash your sins away. All you have to do is confess your sins. That's it. And for those of you who are sitting here today and you're like, I'm definitely a Christian. There's no doubt. Consider yourself a a Christian. Here's a couple things that I'm going to be meditating on this week and I would encourage you to do the same. Meditate on, pray about. The first might seem a little weird, but ongoing confession. Just make it a part of your life. Make ongoing confession just a part of your regular prayer life. You know, when you get in your daily prayer, just, Lord, man, I've just been screwing up in a couple areas, and I could use your, the Spirit of God to help me in those areas. Ongoing confession. It's really, again, it's not to restore the fact of whether you're going to heaven or hell. It's to restore your relationship with him. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And the second thing I would encourage you just to meditate on, pray about this week, is humility. Pray about areas in your life where you can show humility. Areas where you can show love and serve the people around you. I don't think we could have had a better introduction missionary than Evan standing up here serving the least of the least in the in Dominican Republic. That's how God orchestrates these things. It's a real life example of someone who has just said, I'm going to serve whoever. Whoever God wants me to serve, I'm going to serve. And so my challenge to you would just be, man, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. We desperately need humility. We all do. We need humility. So keep your eyes fixed on the founder and perfecter of our faith. Paul, and I'm going to close with this. Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, he challenges them to be like Jesus. And in Philippians 2, 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a beautiful picture of humility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come in here and to study your word and 
Study John chapter 13. What a beautiful example that you've given us for what it means to be humble, what it means to serve, what it means to take the, the form of a, of a servant. And in that culture, just the lowest of the low and to serve others, to show them who you are, to show them love. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you for next week as we just continue the story in the upper room where you issue a new commandment to love one another. Lord, I thank you for that, that truth. I pray that we'd leave here today just with a, an understanding of who you are, an understanding of the cross. And if there's anyone in here today that wanted to make a decision and didn't, that they would do that. They would make that decision to follow you. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.